Wait, before you, before you answer this, I would like you to put your uh, chasuble on. And, <laughs> right, and before we have Tenebrae, or maybe after the Easter Vigil, you should tell us what a Calvinist is. <laughs> We're gin and tonic. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here once again with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys today? Wonderful. Yeah, great, Nick. Thanks. I see we've got chat GPT making up Bible verses now. Uh, <laughs> what are some other dangerous theological questions that we could ask artificial intelligence? <laughs> You're referring to that that I guess it was a trans person who's being discouraged. I read it, yeah. Because because I don't know if it was a he or a she. Uh in reality, I don't know what it was <laughs> what this person was. But uh let's just say he he was discouraged. So he wanted to he asked um Chad GPT, you know, what to, to make up a Bible verse, a Bible passage. Mm-hmm as if Jesus were affirming a trans person and, and, and the chat GPT spit it out. And it, it did. I mean, if you know the Bible, well, you know, it doesn't sound anything like the Bible, but, but this person was in tears because it was so moving and touching. And then uh, a gay couple uh, retweeted it, just how, how beautiful it is. Um, and <laughs> this is our future, man. Yeah. <laughs> Made up uh, gibberish. Is Although it has um, seemed like when you ask these chatbots the sort of more generic undirected questions like what is the christian gospel it seems to get it relatively close now that this was in a sense forcing its hand right write a bible passage in which jesus affirms trans identity it's like not too many options to go on there right right but it's scary well, that's the whole because, thing about the prompts I mean, yeah this is what we said this before but this is why people need to hold on to here if you have a hard copy if you don't have a hard copy of the bible get one don't just use your apps don't just use your electronic versions get an actual bible because um i this is the kind of thing we're going to see the manipulation of of the 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 ease with which people can manipulate the written text if it's only on electronic version is only going to increase and the sophistication of the manipulation is going to be is going to increase and it'll be harder so, and harder to see, you know, exactly yeah. who was on what translation committee and what body put this particular translation out. That'll get much more murky. Well, and the sad part is we know that it doesn't even have to be that sophisticated. I mean, you look back at the Soviets, you know, racing people from uh, pictures, you know, these famous ones where like there are hands right. and no body or like there's like clearly <laughs> like a and and, you know, the sad part is, is that under that regime, um, not only was it clearly obvious, but, you know, people for the most part didn't revolt, you know, I mean, obviously it took 70 years, but, but it wasn't like, oh, we're so offended by your manipulation of the past or reality that we're, we're going to speak up and stick our necks out. And I mean, that's Solzhenitsyn's whole argument about the greengrocer, or that was Baklav Havel's argument, but Solzhenitsyn's argument too, that, you know, there's just so many people that are going to, kind of just want to get along, go along to get along, that they're going to put up with an awful lot of manipulation. Um, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if some, you know, seeker sensitive church guy starts incorporating some of these chat GBT quote oh, yeah. unquote Bible verses in their sermons, you know, it's yeah. like, it's um, no weirder than the passion translation. I mean, they're, they're both like, no, it's not. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> or the hip hop prayer book. Remember that one? Oh, it's a, 
I feel like we need to call our listeners' attention to the fact that Matt Kennedy is wielding what appears to be a magic wand or a <laughs> back scratcher. What? What's I going don't know on what there? this is. It's a plastic. <laughs> I'm at, at my in-laws' house, and it's just this plastic rod that I see sitting next to me. I'm so you will not around. spare the rod. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Well, today, guys, we're going to break open the Stanford mailbag, something we haven't done in a long time. Thank you so much to our listeners. And here, I think we must begrudgingly confess that we have more than one uh, for <laughs> taking the time to send in such great questions. Uh, we have a couple that we're going to see how far we get through today. Please do keep sending them. We'll do this mailbag um, as often as we can. This first one is a question from Sean. He says, you mentioned that ordination vows mean you should agree with the doctrines of the church or leave it. This was in response to liberal bishops. Now, as an aside here, we also recently said the same about Resurrection Church in Austin. Now, in that vein, Sean asks, do you have to be Calvinist to be Anglican in good conscience? Because he says the 39 articles are Calvinist. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Next question. <laughs> so, what's a Calvinist? Yeah, no, I, I mean, think. Go ahead, Matt. Okay, uh, the, the, the articles are broadly reformed. Wait, before so. you, before you answer this, I would like you to put your uh, chasuble on. <laughs> right, your right. <laughs> and before we have Tenebrae, or maybe after the Easter vigil, you should tell us what a Calvinist is. <laughs> Over gin and tonic, right? The, I mean, uh, the. Uh, <laughs> Okay, the articles are broadly reformed. Um, reformed, yes. I think that's a big distinction that you need to make. But yes. anyway, go. You'll make it. You'll make it. Right. So Calvinism is a is a is a branch within the reformed understanding of the faith, and so uh, Calvin and, and even as we talk about Calvinism, Calvinism is as it is today is not necessarily uh, wholly consistent with even what Calvin. Uh, wrote in in the institutes. I mean, the the the, you know, the most the thing thing people most associate with Calvin right now is is the tulip acronym. But Calvin didn't make that up. And I mean, I think I think it's broadly consistent with his thought. But it's uh, that's an artifact of modern uh, modern Calvinism, not necessarily of Calvin himself. So so yeah, okay. So the the articles are broadly reformed um, in its under in the understanding in its understanding of how grace works with regard to free will. You see that I think in Article Nine, they're broadly reformed in in with regard to predestination. There's an article that uh, addresses predestination pretty clearly, yeah, pretty clearly. And um, and so so Anglicans would say there's nothing in the human person that's able to turn from sin and choose Christ. We can't do that in our own power. It wholly depends on on the grace of God regenerating a person and drawing that person to faith in Jesus Christ. That's all a gift that sets us firmly within the reformed view. And those people who are set apart or those who are given that gift of faith are those who are elect. And so that's, that's also firmly within the, within the reformed camp. I think in general too, we can look at the, at the way the the articles describe the, the sacraments and say, those are also, it's also a reformed description of, of, of how a sacrament works so communion, for example, is, you know, we, we, we don't believe that the bread is changed into anything other than bread. And yet, at the same time, those who approach the communion table in faith truly feed on Jesus in a spiritual way, in a, a, in a mystical spiritual way. It's you truly feed on his body and blood. So in all these ways, our articles are distinctly reformed. And yet, I would say we're not reformed in other ways, like we're, we're, you we have not adopted, we talked about this before, but we've not adopted the reformed 
understanding of the the regular regulative principle. We we Anglicans have tend to be more Lutheran in this regard, that the church is is not bound by only what is prescribed in the New Testament as regards forms of worship and and polity. We can so long as what we do with regard to worship and uh, church authority doesn't contradict the Bible, we're free. That's a normative view. So that's a, that's a Lutheran view uh, that we've taken. Also, I think that um, that reform that we're more Lutheran in our approach to the law gospel distinction than we are um, that we are reformed. At least as modern modern Calvinism right. is now, it seems to have been taken over a lot by at least one stream of Puritanism, which emphasizes heavily focuses on your sanctification. And, and and how you can know whether or not you are truly in the faith. You check out your works and are you doing the right things that you should do that would indicate that you're saved. Anglicanism has, has traditionally avoided that. We don't. We, we tend to be more Lutheran, I think, with regard to our understanding of the, of the law and the gospel. Uh, you know, you're a Christian because you trust in Jesus. That's and, 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 and he's, yeah. given us, he's, he's given us promises, and we can trust those promises. And that's and that's how you know you're in. So so Calvinism, no. Reformed, yes. Does that leave room for our Arminian and Wesleyan brothers? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does where that is where it comes down to the debate, generally speaking, because you know there are fine points. What you've noticed, there's fine points of um, of distinction between you know sort of post synod of Dort Calvinism and where Tulip was, um, or at least the acronym wasn't, but I mean like the ideas of Tulip were solidified. Um, I mean, you know, it's famously John Davenant, you know, the Anglican divine that was sent there, you know, disagreed with with four of, I mean, the, the fifth of the four points, you know, the limited atonement. I mean, that's kind of a statement. Yeah. So within Anglicanism, reformed, broadly speaking, you could you could quibble and differ on um, the finer points of the inner workings of God. I mean, I, that's sort of how I, I view, you know, from Augustine on down. I mean, even like Blaise Pascal, you know, these people. The, the logical consistency of TULIP is is straightforward. I mean, you know, limited atonement, God, Jesus, no one is snatched from his hand. It's very logically consistent, and yet great thinkers who have essentially said, that's probably true, but it's it's too too unspeakable for, for human lips, basically. You know, this is this seems to be a mystery resolved. I'm, I'm going to stop short of going sort of full-throated in this. And I've listened to all, I'm sure you have listened to a lot of debates where people say, well, that's a denial of the gospel, and, you know, you can't, if you don't believe in limited atonement, you're you're defacing and dying Christ. And so I so, said, well, you know, uh, we're going to agree to disagree. And I'm going to stand with, the, you know, with some pretty substantial faithful thinkers throughout history and just sort of hope that, you know, in the broad brush, we're in where we agree that we're going to uh, be faithful to the biblical vision, which we would just say is reformed, you know, but when it does come down with an Anglicanism, and y'all may have some interest in this too, but I mean, some experience too, but it's been my experience from from the moment we got ordained in the Church of England through the Episcopal Church, and even in some parts of the ACNA, that what the arguments really center around when you talk about the thirty-nine articles in church history is whether or not you can be, like you said, Matt, an Arminian, or you could, or by extension, you can somehow deny or downplay substitutionary atonement, uh, because those seem to be, for some in some people's mouths, you know, the unutterable phrases of, you know, the hardcore Protestantism. And I'm more than happy. And I think we, in fact, are directed to embrace both those, um, you know, I uh, reject Arminianism and embrace substitutionary atonement as Anglicans, as biblical Christians. 
Um, and whether that's called re- reformed or not, you know, is secondary to the fact that not only do our articles say it, but I think the Bible clearly teaches it. And so I think that's where, right. um, at least in my experience, you know, the fine points of the kind of scholastic Lutheran and reform debates of the, you know, 17th, 18th century are interesting. Um, and I think have are, are worth studying if that's what you're, uh, if, you know, energized by. But when it push hits, when when the road rubber hits the road, I think many people are reacting to, you know, these sort of contentious doctrines, which, in my opinion, are the some the substance of the recovery of the Bible at the time of the Reformation, namely the the clear, you know, substitutionary uh, penal substitution of Christ for sinners, which then secured um, the promise which has been given to the elect. Um, however, that is in God's wisdom ultimately decided. But for us, it's a great comfort, as Article 17 says, for the, you know, because we can then trust that when we are, um, when our the eyes of our hearts are enlightened and our ears are open and and we begin to call upon his name, that he will never let us go. I mean, that's that's the glory. And that's that's 17. If you read Article 17 slowly, um, it becomes sort of a sermon, you know, has law and gospel, you know, uh, which I commend to anyone. I mean, pull out your prayer book and uh, check it out. Well. Let's move on to the next question. I felt like that was an actual adequate answer and a nice, reasonable amount of time. Well done, you. (laughs) So we had a long question from Sarah. I'm going to boil it down a little bit. It comes down to whether or not we think women can and should be ordained to the permanent diaconate. We spent a lot of time talking about women in ministry over the last couple months. I think all three of our dioceses do ordain women to the diaconate. My own answer to this question, since you guys hogged all the time on the first one, is a yes. Um, I think that Phoebe is referred to as a servant, but I think that word in Romans 16 does refer to a role in the church. She's identified as a servant of the church at Centria, Centria, however you say that word. And um, when Paul is listing the qualifications for deacons in 1 Timothy 3, there's that phrase that is sometimes translated and their wives and sometimes translated and the women. And I think that a good argument can be made for the fact that that's his qualifications for the women who will be deacons, because there is no similar rule for the wives of elders in the previous paragraph. He's specifically, it would be really weird for him to have rules for wives of deacons and not have rules for wives of elders. And so I think that he's made there a separate category where eldership is reserved for men, but the diaconate is open to women as well. What do you guys think? Yeah, I agree with you about that. I mean, I think the one question comes in with regard to preaching, right? Because um, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road. If, if you, if you allow, if you ordain women as deacons, mm-hmm. uh, do you also ordain them in, into a teaching office, right? Because traditionally with an Anglicanism, deacons have uh, been licensed to preach and to teach. And if they're doing so in the context of a worship service, they'd be preaching to men and uh, exercising a kind of a preaching authority there. So the, some of those who disagree with the ordination of, of, the de- of deacons would say, well, uh, okay, I hear what you're saying about First Timothy three, and 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 yet we also have this instruction in First Timothy two not to mm-hmm. not to allow women to hold authority right. over or teach teach men. So does that 
and when obviously since Paul's not going to contradict himself in the same right the same <laughs> way in, in, in the same letter well and he immediately um, refers to deacons as you know well, husbands of one wife in the same passage you know I'm in same first Timothy three so I think there's a anyway I mean it's it's, a, it's confused it's, it's complicated it um, certainly seems like the first appointed deacons which are not named as such in that text are the seven who are appointed specifically because the teaching office is being reserved for the apostles. And so yeah. they can't do the service work that the deacons are then appointed to do. I think that we, we as Anglicans have, have gotten sort of halfway to that distinction. We see like the early church, that there is an appointed office there, that these are appointed people to serve the church, but there's a distinction between that office and the authoritative teaching office, which has over time been blurred, I think, unfortunately. So I think that there's room for a permanent diaconate that does not go over into the authoritative teaching role, whether that's for men or women. If you're called to the diaconate, that involves a vocation of service, not a vocation of eldership and teaching. That's what I mean, our bishop, Bishop Dobbs, that's, I think that's his position. Um, so, so what he's done recently is he's distinguished being ordained to, as a deacon to, uh, he's distinguished that from having a license to preach. You have to do those separately in our diocese. And my guess is that he will not be licensing uh, female deacons to preach, but I, I Can don't. you be licensed if you haven't been ordained or haven't been you Some can be licensed to preach if you haven't been ordained, right? You, that's that's mm. possible. So, Interesting. yeah, yeah. I think the whole conversation, um, you know, surrounds what we've talked about before. The, the fundamental categories, if we're going to accept or reject them, if we if we accept a ontological distinction between men and women that was ordained and created and uh, established, and then read the New Testament charitably through. Um, a desire to see how and where God would have equipped and sent people in various ways and the limitations, you know, like, I mean, we're not permit a woman to teach, you know, uh, exercise authority over men and so on and so forth. Well, then you can come to a, an appreciation of something within the Anglican polity of a diaconate um, for women that is not sort of offensive to the clear reading of scripture. That might be a stretch too far for some, uh, but it certainly is within the bounds of a respected. I, I mean, I've experienced this firsthand. Like, no, no one thinks that that Bishop Dobbs' position. You know, no one's no one's accusing him of being a, a wild heretic on when respect to men and women. You know, or he's sort of a you know a, a crypto progressive or something. Um, and so I think that I think it's it's been an interesting conversation to be a part of, and I hope it continues because you know this idea the 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 real heart of the, I think the. The, the problem that I'm hoping we are beginning to address and hopefully see some resolution to is the kind of overt clericalism that crept into the, yeah. um, particularly the Episcopal Church in the mid 20th century, um, where I think Anne was saying in her your podcast the other day, Matt, that, you know, if you weren't, if you didn't have a PhD or you weren't ordained, you weren't, you know, a real woman or something in the church. Yeah. And like that, that's just a, that's just a foolish thing to, to believe. And in any healthy body, healthy family, church family, that would have been a laughable concept. And so I think as we see the church sort of regain its health by God's grace, and we see the um, the dividing walls of hostility between men and women you know, actually be torn down, we can begin to address some of these questions, uh, whether we call it the ordained diaconate or not, 
whether we call, you know, however we, we, we get to the point where we actually see a healthy expression of the service for the Lord within the local church and the family. Um, and I think I actually have appreciated, as we said, I've appreciated much of the argumentation in ACNA, not all of it, but much of it has centered around just this type of, of genuine wrestling without fear of offending kind of the spirit of the age in a genuine hope of finding a way to affirm the polity that we have, you know, bishops, priests, and deacons without contravening the clear prohibitions of scripture. And so, you know, people have thought much more deeply about the specifics than I have, I have to admit. I mean, having been um, spent 12 of my, what, I guess, 18 years now just trying to, um, you know, defend the divinity of Christ and the <laughs> literal resurrection, you know, so it's a little behind the ball in terms of, uh, but I'm grateful for the people that have been, have been laboring on this question and look forward to continuing to see how it plays out in the ACNA. Uh, the next question is from John. I think this is in regards to the uh, relatively viral video that came out of the SBC convention, uh, Mark Dever and Nine Marks. And the question is, what is regenerate church membership? And what do you guys think of that? It, it, um, it goes back to uh, the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, um, where, uh, where God says that, in the future, no one will have to teach anyone to know the Lord because they'll all know me from least of them to the greatest. Uh, and he'll write his law in our hearts. And from that, Baptists and others uh, conclude that the new covenant church uh, must be comprised only of regenerate members. The visible church. And, yeah, and, the visible and, church. Yeah. yeah. So that's that's why. In a sense that the invisible church and the visible church are the same. Yeah. So, so, so if you, yeah, that, that's now, of course, in reality, even Baptist, right. that, that doesn't sure. work out that way, but that should be the effort and the aim is, is that you don't want to, you don't want to bring people into the church unless they are professing faith in Jesus, because that's what's consistent with the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31. So, so we, we would now, there are other, all kinds of ways other denominations work with that. I mean, and either they, they say that the Baptists are reading too much into it, um, or you could just be a baptismal regenerist and say, and say, well, every time we baptize a kid, he's regenerate. So, so we, we have regenerate membership. Um, and then you get into the question of what regeneration is uh, with regard yeah. to baptism. So, so, well, that's the real question right there, because, you know, if, if regeneration looks like Romans 7, I mean, meaning the the fight of the spirit, the battle is is entered into, as opposed to the hardness of heart and the blindness of the eyes, continue to refuse the, um, or at least or reject the the Holy Spirit. Well, then you're talking about an entirely different type of regeneration than you know if it's um, I don't know if it's if it's well, I'm not really sure. It's been a long time since I've been in a church that would define regeneration anyway, other than that, honestly, um, you know, because the. I guess that's that's maybe the the Lutheran and Feck doing and the kind of the you know like you said Matt the sort of the the differences the emphasis on law and gospel about how the the, the tormented con- conscience to a certain degree um, given the depth of sin and need in our hearts should never end I mean to a certain degree I mean we should never we will never exhaust the examples of our need for grace um, so if you were worried about being regenerate in the sense of being a Christian for fifty years and still finding things to confess and be absolved of, well, then I think that's a, that's a different type of understanding of Christianity. I'm not saying it's not Christian, but that's a different type um, sort of pastoral care and churchmanship than I'm involved in currently and have been, you know, since, since becoming an Anglican. So I don't know. Um, 
yeah, that's kind of how I see it. But again, I'm not, I'm, I respect Mark Deaver a lot. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, you know, it's nothing disparaging, but I do think that's, there's, there's a difference up and down the line between people who baptize professing adults and people who inaugurate them as pre, you know, speech Christian uh, people. And we, we treat them differently their entire lives. I don't, yeah, I don't think he's, I don't think Mark Dever was saying that regenerate membership means holy, you know, pure living as a, I think he was saying faith. I think that's what he, what he meant is that he would, for him, the mark of being regenerate is having faith in, in Jesus. So you can't baptize someone into the church until they have that mark of regeneration, which is faith. I don't think it was a righteousness of life necessarily. Right. Okay. I mean, and that does bring up the question of what regeneration is. I mean, like, spiritually, of course, regeneration is being given new birth. Like Jesus says in John chapter uh, chapter three, being born again from above, not the same person you were before because God has made a change in you. But that word has been used differently like within, in, in baptismal theology. It hasn't always right. meant that in inner transformation it has all it has also contained or it has also meant um just just being bound to the church because what happens when you're when a person is is a child or an infant is baptized is he is he is taken from the world much like uh, an israelite was taken from slavery in egypt and brought through the Red Sea and into and born into a people and and, yeah. the, and at that moment Israel was kind of born right. Um, well, in the same way, a, bab- a baby is brought through the waters of baptism and brought into the church. Whether Our that prayer book specifically is, mentions Noah and the flood, yes, right. from the flood. Yeah, and so in that sense, we can always say the baby is regenerate without having to say necessarily that that baby has had an inner an inter- an internal transformation of the soul which we hope that has happened we expect that right. happened we can't say for sure so and even as we've said even the most tied in the wool credo baptist would have to leave room for the truth about human nature and our inability to even know ourselves that well and to live a life that becomes apostate after having made an adult profession of faith. I mean, yeah. these are these are the things that we need God to be the actor to save us rather than rely yeah. on some good decision that we've made. Yeah, I mean, I think I think, you know, I'm sympathetic to the idea as a pastor that you want means by which you can help encourage um, sanctification, you know, encourage the conformity to Christ. You want to you know, you want to have objective or or at least um, clear sort of criteria where you can, you know, like Paul says, you know, don't, don't associate with these people, Timothy, you know, like the ones that are manifesting the the works of the flesh. That being said, you know, I think there's also fear. Um, and this is, this goes back to, this is sort of a, a pietistic thread. I'm not saying Mark Dave is a pietist, but like since, since the Reformation in particular, you know, being afraid that churches are going to promise too much and sort of um, give quote unquote cheap grace. I mean, I don't think that's how Bonhoeffer meant it, but I think that's the idea. And, you know, I'm always brought back to um, Luther's discussion with Erasmus, and I don't have the book in front of me now, but the paraphrase is thus that, you know, Erasmus was saying, well, if you tell people that the grace of God is free, um, they don't have to do anything for it, and they can just, quote, just believe, then there will be people who abuse it. And Luther's answer was essentially like, well, who cares? Like, that's not that's not my problem. And like, what do you problem, think people are doing currently? That's right. That's right. It's like, my problem isn't that people will abuse it. It's for those people who need it and hear it to hear it and need to be reminded of their baptism and the free grace of God in Christ. Once again, like this is for them. And so, yes, you know, I think from a church perspective, 
I think we have been, I don't say us necessarily, but but I think in the denominations, the, the particularly Episcopal Church and some of the other mainline churches have turned a blind eye to fairly obvious uh, patterns of sin that have brought cynicism and kind of disdain to the public witness of the church, you know, turned a blind eye to fornication or mm-hmm. or usury or, or whatever, you know, embezzlement. I mean, like all the stuff, you know, whatever the, the, the stuff that people can point to and say those Christians are hypocrites. And so I think we should try to avoid that as best we can in our own lives and then lovingly in the lives of our parishioners. But when it comes down to the to the status of the heart and what people are um, trusting in, you know, we cannot put their trust back on whether or not they themselves consider, you know, they know that they are worthy of, of God or, or have made a full profession or have decided to follow Jesus. I mean, the point of the point of baptizing in the first place is to put the trust and hope outside of themselves so that at the very point of their greatest need, they'd be able to fall back on something that's much stronger than they are, which I think was what Paul meant when he said that the Lord's um, strength is made perfect in our weakness. And I think that's that's one of the pitfalls of the whole regenerative church membership discussion, which I think Anglicans, you know, we've got a lot of problems, but I think this is one area where we have, pastorally speaking, we at least have the tools to be very effective. Now, whether we utilize them in the right way or not, that's always a question, but I think that we have the history, we have the formularies, and we have the pastoral practice to draw from that I think, well, at least it served me well, personally and pastorally, you know, some 20 years, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, there is, I have sympathy with those who say, well, look, you know, look at the Church of England, the average, the average C of E church, the gospel is not being preached in that, in that place. People are getting baptized because, hey, they've always, that's what you do. And, and so I can see why you would object to infant baptism in a context like that and say, well, look, you're, you're, you're just, it's just a thing. You're just pouring water over the kid's head and, and, and you're saying these words, but there's no substance for that kid to, cl- to, to cling onto as he gets older. He's just going to, what, what, what use is it? And, in, and um, of course the, the solution there is not to stop baptizing infants. The solution is to start preaching the gospel and to, you know, and, and to, catechizing the, the baptized right. <laughs> into confirmation. I mean, like, don't just stop there. I mean, there's yeah, all sorts yeah. of answers that don't, right. don't encourage don't involve also stopping right. baptizing. That's right. Yeah, I just talked to someone about this the other day because uh, we just did a baptism this past Sunday. And as an aside, I was reminded again of how, you know, whatever you want to say about the 2019 Book of Common Prayer, I know there's some naysayers or whatever. I I, I like it, but I think the baptism service is great. I think that um, I think that they've really clearly corrected some of the some of the Trojan, they've removed some of the Trojan horses from the 79 prayer book. But at any rate, you know, I said the, the problem in my experience with believer's baptism, quote unquote, credo baptism over against infant baptism is precisely that point, Matt, is that, you know, when you're 14, you, you have a lot of ideas about yourself in life that might um, be tested quite dramatically in the next 10, if not 20, 30 or 40 years. And during that testing, we pray that your baptism is actually a positive and an encouraging uh, reality to what you've done. And in many cases, it is. I have great Baptist friends who have made it through all the dark nights of the soul. and are, But but I also know many people who, at the point where they needed to hear um, the promise of God was secured outside of your current situation as when you clearly as possible. Yeah. That's right. They They couldn't help but just simply remember that they used to believe when they were 16 and now they're 26 and they don't. Whereas, you know, if they had been catechized altogether differently beginning at six months, then perhaps it would have been different. I mean, that's that's just some from a pastoral perspective, theologically, you know, I think theologically we can we can defend it scripturally. It's, you know, we can you can there there are a lot of ways to argue this this point, which is why we don't disfellowship, you know, Baptists who disagree with us. I mean, we don't de church them, but I do think 
it has significant pastoral um, and theological ramifications for how you structure your household, how you understand your own self, and how ultimately you have your Christian walk. And so that's why I'm not surprised if there's an Anglican church next to a Baptist church, we can have lunch together afterwards, but we'll have a somewhat different, you know, worship service uh, before then, and then we can um, have a kickball game or something. Do you play kickball anywhere? Anyway, I'm planning on having one at the end of the summer. Church kickball sounds amazing. I can't wait. There you go. There you go. Well, let's get to one more question. This one's from Evan, who would love to hear our recommendations for how local lay people can get involved in ACNA matters. What is a productive way to engage with rectors and bishops on matters of concern? What's the proper role for lay people in provincial affairs? I mean, we are, we do have, we do have a, if you're coming from a non liturgical background or coming from like a independent church of some sort, we do have an authority structure that's probably going to trip you up a little bit because it's not like it's not like the church you came from. Probably, it's I think it's better, of course, but it's, it's not like it. So, so you want to get involved in ACNA affairs. Maybe you have concerns about the way things are going. Maybe even your own in your own parish. I don't, I don't know. Just one rule of thumb. And I'm not even sure this is quite what you're asking, but um, one rule of thumb is go to your priest before your bishop. Follow the um, chain of command. Yeah, follow yeah, the chain sure. of command, right? Because you don't want to go over your priest's head because that will just create some lack of trust between you and him. And he's going to think you're trying to undermine him, which you probably, not that you, not that you are, you just don't know the rules, but just be, don't do that. Go ahead go. If you have a concern about something, go to your priest, talk to him. And um, if it's something that he's doing, it's wrong that you think, then say, hey, look, I've got to, I've got to take this further than you because. Still go to um, him first. Yeah, but still, but still go yeah. to him first. But then say, hey, I've got to, I've got, to, I can't, I got to go further. But I think he is kind of the, the if you want, if you have a personal concern, you want to get get involved with. That's what you do. Now, if you just want to get involved in like just stuff going on in the provincial level, you know, synod stuff, provincial synod stuff. Um, that's something you can do. Like you ask your priest and get you nominated for your diocesan provincial council yeah. uh, or provincial delegate. And you can you can go and get involved there. You can get involved in your own diocesan synod. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can actually put, get involved beyond your own congregation. In I mean, that's always sort of you want, where you want to start, right? You want to start at home and invest yourself and involve yourself in your local church so that when your priest thinks about who in his church can be a voice at the diocesan and then provincial level. He's not going to first want to like, Hmm, who's that guy who sits in the back with a scowl on his face all the time. You know, like that's not who you want to be. You want to be the, the, the engaged advocate for what your local church is doing and then sort of spread out your involvement from there. Yeah. And I mean, to that end, you know, my experience most, I mean, Matt, I don't know. You don't have any experience with people um, contacting your bishop um, or claiming. <laughs> but I, uh, my experience has been almost exclusively, and I'm grateful for this, is people coming to me with concerns about the ACNA that they are heartened, that we are aware of and are addressing, you know, from inappropriate ways, like whether it's diocesan council or standing committee or just, you know, could you... You know, for instance, if someone is worried about a particular direction ACNA seems to be going or a decision that was or was not made, they can come to me 
And I am grateful to be able to say in most cases, without exception, like we're thinking about that, we're praying about that. Thank you for the galvanizing support and, you know, stay tuned. Um, and it's been in a couple of instances where people have expressed concerns and I'm able to say, well, I don't share that with you. You know, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't think that's really something we need to be that worried about, but you know, let's talk. Yeah. Um, and that's usually as far as it goes, as far as I know. I mean, I haven't had any Bishop then come back to me and say, you know, I've gotten a slew of emails from this person about from certain misguided sort of amillennial eschatology or something like that, yeah. you know, for instance. And so, I, um, but I do think that, you know, people should feel free and I welcome any of our listeners who happen to go to our church, feel free at any point to, to make an appointment and express concern or, or questions about um, the church, you know, specific, uh, specifically local, but also general. Um, and I'm hopeful that if I'm doing my job, calling living my vocation um, appropriately that i'm i'm engaged or aware or if not then thank you for bringing Want to become so, something yeah. that yeah that i wasn't and i think this is where i would challenge acna clergy in particular um and we do this all the time who are not actively equipping their congregation to uh, withstand the the inevitable questions now of what is anglican what's the over against you know other denominations you know what was what was the split about like all of these sort of contentious questions that people implicitly have but they're not necessarily going to bring up to you explicitly like i think this is in part our um time you know like you we've been talking about to clarify these distinctions we shouldn't have more congregants that are represented like these ones in these churches that left the acna to go to the Episcopal church who were somehow in churches that were unaware of what we believe and why. And so I think, you know, concerns about the leadership are one thing, but I think to uh, preempt some of these questions by just offering classes and state, you know, pointing, giving resources and clarifying as best we can will, I think, offset, well, well, we should try to clarify as much confusion as we can. Who are we? What are we? What's Kigali? What's GAFCON? Is it worth it? You know, all these things. These are these are big questions that I think if we the clearer we are and the more steadfast and the more articulate we are about it, then it can only help um, uh, bring comfort to the sheep. I mean, and I speak as one, you know, as a sheep under the you know over shepherd of a bishop, and I feel very comfortable in that pen. And there are people under me that I hope share in that comfort as I seek to uh, protect them from the wolves. I think that the the airport rule. If you see something, say something is basically in effect here. I mean, you want to say it to the right person. So if you're a lay person, say it to your priest. If you're a priest, say it to your bishop. We we love the ACNA and want to protect it. And one of the ways to do that is when you see a wolf floating around the edges, don't assume that someone else is going to see it. Don't assume that someone else is going to take care of it. It's okay to call attention to it in the right way. And um, to help protect the church that you love so much. Amen. Well, that is that. Those are the four questions that we're going to have done today. We do thank you for writing in. Um, we'll try to do these mailbags as often as we can. It's really fun to interact with listener questions. Thank you for writing in and for listening to Stand Firm. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, be in touch. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Do send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com or join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thanks to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Mm-hmm.